the king of the Jews. Are you the king of the Jews? That's what Pontius Pilate asked Jesus. Now this morning I'd like you to picture that you're back in the first century. Imagine you're being transported through time to the night of Jesus' betrayal by his follower Judas. Imagine being in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus is arrested and taken away. Will you follow him that night to the house of the high priest where he is questioned about his followers and about his teachings? Nearby, you hear faint whispers of Peter denying Jesus to save himself. And finally, you're in the headquarters of Pilate, the Roman governor in Jerusalem. And you watch as Pilate questions Jesus getting straight to the point, are you the king of the Jews? Now, Jesus asks if this is Pilate's question or if others have put him up to this. And Pilate throws his hands in the air and says, your own people have handed you over to me. What have you done? And then Jesus says this, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Now, hearing Jesus admit that he has a kingdom catches your ear. And as you're listening nearby, Pilate voices the same question that's running through your mind. So, you are a king. And after this question is asked, imagine being transported back to this time, contemplating what you just heard. Now, this morning, I wonder if some of us are asking that same question. Is Jesus a king? And if he is, what kind of king is he? See, the truth is we're all like Pilate at some point in time in our lives. In our series, Messiah, we have looked at Jesus as our great and final prophet. We've talked about how he is our great high priest. And today we'd like to conclude by turning our attention to Jesus, our king. Before we begin, I would invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, our great king, the one who is sovereign, the one who rules this world, the one who rules our lives. And Father, I don't admit to know the situations of everyone who has walked in here today, Lord, but I pray that you would offer comfort where comfort needs to be given. I pray, Lord, that you would bring conviction where conviction needs to happen. And Father, I pray ultimately that you would get the glory for the word that is spoken today. We ask that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Handel's Messiah is arguably the most famous piece of choral music ever written. In fact, I remember performing this piece at every winter high school choral concert I took part in, which were quite a few. When performed correctly, this piece exhausts the bodies of the singers and it invigorates the souls of the listeners, often causing them to stand to their feet and applaud. This is an unparalleled song and it's a staple of Christmas time as it celebrates the birth, the passion, and the return of Jesus Christ. Now, what you might not know about this piece of music is that George Hendel, its composer, wrote the music in his mid-50s after going through incredible physical, financial, and emotional hardship. In fact, in 1737, he suffered a severe stroke, which caused temporary paralysis in his right arm and blurred vision in his eyes. Because of these challenges, Hendel had to give up a career in opera, 
not knowing where he would turn next. So he decided to pursue choral writing, but that didn't pay very much. And so in 1741, Hendel was financially and emotionally broken when a man named Charles Jennings approached him. And he asked Hendel to compose music for the lyrics that he had just written, which were taken mostly from the Bible. Hendel was so moved by the lyrics he read that he spent a mere 24 days composing what is now known as Hendel's Messiah. The most famous section of the piece is the Hallelujah Chorus. Well, Hendel was writing this section, it is said that his assistant came into his room and found him sobbing uncontrollably. And when asked what was wrong, Hendel held up the score to the Hallelujah movement and said, I think I saw the face of God. It's no wonder he had this reaction. I imagine he pictured the singers belting out the lines, and he shall reign forever and ever, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The song is a testament to the kingly rule of Jesus Christ. See, George Hendel was confronted with the same question that Pontius Pilate was confronted with. Are you a king? We ask of Jesus. And Hendel was moved to the point of sobbing because he knew that Jesus was a king. And this truth is majestically displayed in each note of the score. In fact, it's hard to listen to Hendel's Messiah and not fall to your knees in worship. But often, we don't fall to our knees in worship. And I wonder if we might ask a question this morning. Why is that? Why don't we fall to our knees before the king? And I wonder if anyone in this room can sympathize with George Hendel. Because before he wrote this world-famous piece of music, he was in a very dark place. A severe stroke. Paralysis in his arm. Blurred vision. He was in overwhelming debt. In fact, those circumstances would cause the average person to become angry at God. God, why isn't my life turning out as I had hoped? Are you really in control, God? Do you really care about me? And maybe George Hendel, in the solitude of his room, shouted those same concerns. And I wonder if that is when God showed up. Maybe it was in that moment when all hope seemed lost when he was deeply frustrated and angry that he recognized his need for a king who is in control, no matter the circumstances. Maybe it was then that he saw the face of God. Does anyone in this room need a fresh reminder that we have a king who is in control, who is sovereign over this world, even when hope seems lost? I know I need that reminder every day. But it's especially true, I think, during the holidays. Because maybe this is the first Christmas that you have without that loved one. Maybe this is the year you were diagnosed with cancer or some other chronic disease that's going to change your life. Perhaps that difficult situation in your family is not resolved when you hoped it would be. Or maybe this is the year somebody hurt you deeply and now it's difficult, maybe impossible to forgive them. Well, friends, I want to suggest to you this morning that despite how circumstances seem in your life, the King of Kings knows your heart, and he is in control of this world. And in fact, if that is you today, Psalm chapter 2, I think, was written for you. 
Like the Hallelujah Chorus, the Psalms are meant to be sung. And so I want to suggest to you they're the music of life, and I want to submit this song to consider this morning. And embedded within this psalm, we will see three realities of living under King Jesus. Number one, we have a ruler. Number two, we crave rebellion. And number three, we are desperate for refuge. Ruler, rebellion, refuge. Recognizing each of these points shows us the deeper dimensions of Jesus' kingship in our lives. And so let's begin. Number one, we have a ruler. We have a ruler. Now, theologian John Frame reminds us a great truth. He says this, never forget that the gospel is good news about the coming of a king. And so at Christmas time, a baby was born in Bethlehem who would one day die on a cross. Three days later, he would rise from the dead as our king who has conquered sin and death. And one day he will return to put all things right in this world. He is our savior king. But it does beg the question, what does it mean to have a ruler? What does it mean to have a ruler? Well, I think to fully grasp this concept, we must know the role of the king in ancient Near Eastern culture. Because kings were not supposed to be ruling tyrants who oppressed their subjects, although many were. Rather, the king was supposed to govern with the well-being of his people in mind. And so kings often built temples, they fortified cities, they mustered armies for war. Even if their subjects did not have a choice in this matter, these activities in general were meant to benefit the whole community. Temples were for worshiping God. Well, fortified cities protect their inhabitants and armies fight off invaders. In other words, the king sought the welfare of his people by helping the community to flourish, and he defended his people as a great warrior. A common title applied to ancient Near East kings was shepherd of the people. The king was also the highest judge in the land, administering justice for all people. And so as judge, the king would advocate for the helpless, as we see in Psalm 72. And through the administration of justice, the king would bring peace and habitability to his land. And so you can see, when we speak about Jesus, our king, it's much more than us begrudgingly submitting to his rules. He is our benefactor, our great ruler, who seeks the welfare of his people out of love. He is our warrior king who will protect his people against the forces of darkness And only under his rule will true peace come to our land and justice be meted out for all. He is our great king, our ruler, the shepherd of his people. And so again, it's fitting that we should explore one of the royal psalms this morning. Psalm 2 speaks about the coming Messiah who will rule over all other kings. If George Hendel had composed music for this song, it would certainly have captured our hearts. And so let's, let's first look at the middle section of the psalm, verses 4 to 9, and it goes like this. It says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Now, excuse me. Now, in the previous verses, the psalmist has described the rebellious nature of the kings of the earth, which we'll get to in just a minute. And in their rebellion, in their thought that they could overthrow God himself, he laughs at them. 
In other words, he shows them why he is God. He declares to these other kings, I have installed my king on my holy mountain. I am the one who sets up rulers. And when we step back and think about it, it's rather silly to think that we, as small earthbound creatures, could reject the authority and rule of God himself. Because he is powerful. And he rules. Have you taken a good look at the graphic for our series? You'll find three symbols for the prophet, the priest, and the king. Now, the prophet has a horn because they're the herald of truth. Well, the priest has a shepherd's staff to bring the sheep back into the fold. But the king has a scepter. And again, in the ancient Near East, the king's scepter symbolized their royal and imperial authority. The top of the scepter often bore the royal insignia of the king or the god they served. And later, as Christianity spread, the scepters typically had crosses at the top of them to show the king's allegiance to Christ. In other words, the scepter symbolized the authority of the king and who gave him authority. You see, God is not intimidated by anyone. He says, my king will defeat all other kings. This, of course, points forward to Messiah, Jesus, who will come to this earth as God's chosen king. And in the next few verses, the narrator falls back and the king himself takes center stage. Verse 7 says this, I will proclaim the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Now in verse 7, it says, Yahweh God issued a decree. And in ancient Near Eastern culture, it was a common belief that gods determined the kings. And so this verse indicates that God was choosing his king. And so notice then that Messiah speaks, and Yahweh God addresses him as son The relationship has its background in the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it's in that covenant as here that Yahweh describes his relationship with all the Davidic kings in terms of sonship. This relationship with God gave the kings special power, privilege, and responsibility to mediate justice to all God's people and to lead them in the way of truth. Now, the phrase, I will make the nations your inheritance, The ends of the earth, your possession, indicates that the messianic king will one day rule over the whole earth. If the nations do not submit to him, he will break them. The image is one of divine judgment, but also a reminder of the frailty of the nations of the world. Now, all that being said, here's the truth for us. This king is our king as well. That the Savior King Jesus is the ruler of our hearts and lives. And a question for us this morning is, will we submit to him? Because in reality, we will submit to Jesus, or we will find another king. And I think we know this implicitly. Take a slogan from one of my favorite fast food chains growing up, Burger King. Do you remember what their slogan was? Advance the slide, please. Okay, their slogan was, have it your way. In other words, at this restaurant, you are the king. We are your servants. The Whopper may be the king of burgers, but it serves you. I'll offer you another example. 
If you look back through human history, the actual records of human kings is abysmal. And so many of them are self-centered, cruel. They put people in slavery and act unjustly. In fact, much of our modern age have abandoned the monarchy in favor of democracy or self-government like we have here in the U.S. The point I'm making is simply this. Throughout history, we've Throughout history, we have tried often to topple kings so that others could get power. But what is so interesting is that in the absence of a king, we create royalty. In Britain, the royal family who are essentially celebrities. People in England are obsessed with the royal family, asking questions like, when is Duchess Meghan having her baby? The royal family fills the tabloid pages, even here in America. And yet... We may say, we don't have that in America. And I may ask the question, don't we? Don't we? We don't have royal families, but we fill the space with athletes, with movie stars, with reality TV personalities, with news anchors. Isn't there a reason that LeBron James has proclaimed himself King James? Wasn't Michael Jackson the king of pop? Various news anchors have been dubbed the kings and queens of cable news. Brad and Angelina were known as Hollywood royalty, right? Now, I could go on, but the point I'm making is this. In the absence of a king, we make one. Because we were made to be ruled. And the reason we make kings and queens in our culture is because there is a memory trace all the way back to the beginning of time when we walked with the king in the garden, And if we reject this king, we will find a king to fill the void. But Psalm 2 tells us simply that we have a ruler. We don't need to go looking for another one. God has installed his anointed. And at Christmas, we celebrate the birth of a baby who would rise from the dead. And at his resurrection, he is crowned king. And let's not make the mistake of thinking that Jesus' reign is only in the future. He's reigning now in the hearts of his people. In fact, let me give a quick plug for our next sermon series, which begins on January 6th, entitled, His Kingdom Come. We're going through uh, the life of Christ within the Gospel of Matthew and talking about what it means to live in his kingdom. But before we get there, let me ask you this question. Is the true king sitting enthroned on your heart this Christmas? Now, in America, it's really hard for us to grasp the concept because we have a president, right? He isn't really a king. If we don't like the president's policies, we vote them out of office. But if you don't, you don't vote out a king, you submit to them. And I wonder if we don't let Jesus rule our hearts because we think he's our president. If we don't like what he asks us to do, we vote him out of that part of our lives. But friends, that's not how it works with Jesus, our king. If we treat Jesus like a president, we have created an illusion. We need to come back to Pilate's question, are you a king? And the reason we don't submit to this king is really our second point. We crave rebellion. We crave rebellion. Now, some of the most popular movies of the last few years have been the Star Wars movies. Now, why do so many people flock to see these movies? Well, a key element of the storyline is about the rebels overthrowing the evil empire. We want to be part of the rebellion, I think. It has an allure to it. Now, I recognize that in Star Wars, it is supposed to be a good rebellion. 
But even a good rebellion points to a truth that is deep within our hearts. And it's portrayed by the psalmist in the first couple verses of Psalm 2. This is what the psalmist writes. He says, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now, do you see what's happening here? After reading this, the following verses probably make a little more sense because this section describes an international conspiracy against the authority of Yahweh God and his anointed. In fact, that word anointed is the Hebrew word Messiah. Christ also means anointed, as Pastor Dave explained last week. The Christ was Jesus' title. And so here you see that there is a rebellion happening against Jesus, the true king. It's a backdrop for a great movie if anybody ever wanted to produce it. At the time when this psalm was written, changes in kingship created political instability. And when a king changed in a powerful nation, the rulers of the lesser nations that were under its control would use this opportunity to rebel. Frequently, these lesser nations would band together and they would form an alliance against the stronger nation. And so Psalm 2 here is describing the coronation of a new king, and it serves as a warning To the kings of the earth, don't rebel against him. Now, if I had to break this room down into two groups of people, and I'm sure we could do it into more than that, but just two groups of people, uh, I would put some of us in the category of rule followers, and I would put some of us in the category of rule breakers. Are you a rule follower or a rule breaker? Now, anyone who knows me since I have been young will know that I am a rule follower. Firstborns, I think, tend to be that way. Do I have any other rule followers out there? Yes, I see those hands. Yes, good, you're following the rules, awesome. Now, we can assume that anyone who didn't raise their hand is probably a rule breaker, and so you can now look at them in judgment. I'm kidding, but however, even, even as a rule follower, the idea of rebellion is intoxicating at times. The temptation to do something wrong of breaking the rules can be exciting, and that translates into our spiritual lives as well. Now take notice of verse 3 where it says, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. This is the rallying cry of the rebellious nations. They're essentially saying, Freedom! We don't want to be shackled by your rules and your authority anymore. And church, many times this is the cry of our hearts as well. Because there's a tension between the reality of Jesus as king and our desire for individual freedom. We want freedom because we don't want to be ruled, even though we were made to be ruled. So stop and think for a second about your relationship with God. When you pray, what phrases do you use more often? Do you pray like this and say, God, I want the freedom to do what I want? Or do you pray like this, God, I will submit to you in anything, no matter what you ask of me? Sometimes we act like functional atheists. The 20th century ethics philosopher Mortimer Adler confessed to rejecting religious commitment for most of his life because, he said, it would require a radical change in his life, the way he lived, a basic alteration in the direction of my day-to-day choices as well as in the ultimate objectives to be sought 
or hoped for. The simple matter of the truth is that I did not wish to live up to being a genuinely religious person. Now, a few weeks ago, we spoke about Jesus as our great prophet. And a prophet, we said, is one who reveals the truth about who God is, who guides us into the light. Our problem, as we discussed, is our interior darkness. Our foolish hearts were darkened, Paul wrote. But even if we do see the light, many times there's still a barrier. As a pastor, I've spoken with many people who are skeptical about God and Christianity. And even after clearly explaining the gospel, sharing the reasons for God's existence and the veracity of Christianity, people would say they still won't believe. And they would even say, you've answered all my questions, but I still won't believe. Why? Why not? Why won't you believe? Well, the reason people don't accept the truth about Christ many times is because we don't want to submit to the king. We crave rebellion. We want to rule our own lives. Now, what's interesting about this idea of Jesus being king is that it's gaining traction in our culture. In fact, 10 years ago, Christianity Today published an article that noted a change in the way Americans view God. Some people viewed God as being a friend, In 1984, 29% of Americans described God this way. But by 2008, that number decreased to 18%. Interestingly, people also described God as king. And in 1984, people that described God as king was numbered at about 18%. But that number rose in 2008 to 23%. I find that really intriguing. But it also raises an interesting tension point for the American mindset, because if this trend continues, we are on a collision course between the kingship of Jesus and our individualistic mindset. Because I think what these numbers are saying is essentially this, we want a king, but we don't want a king. We want a king, but we really don't want a king. What we want is some of the benefits of the king, but we still want to call the shots in our life. Now, since New Year's is around the corner, take this advertisement for a gym in Oregon as an example. The title was called The Year of You. The Year of You. New Year's is right around the corner, it says, and you're either going to own the year or the year is going to own you. It's 100% your choice. It's in your hands. That's the first thing. Simply by taking all of the responsibility and putting it on your shoulders, you become empowered. The advertisement continues. It says, next, you take that feeling of empowerment, of invincibility, the feeling that you can run through a wall and you take action. You take action like you've never taken action before. You become prolific. You become consistent. And you let no obstacle stand in your way, no matter what. No more pity parties. No more whining about anything. You are in control. You You are in control. You. And isn't that what we believe? Is that not in our hearts from the time that we're very young? I mean, listen, I have a two-year-old daughter. And if anybody out there has a two-year-old or you remember the time when you had a two-year-old, that is a time and the age when they stop listening to you. And it only gets worse as they get older, right? I ask her to do something and she laughs at me and then she runs away. 
Her favorite thing to do now is to stand up in the shopping cart. And when I, I ask her, please sit down because you're going to hurt yourself, she laughs at me as though she's looking at me and saying, oh, silly daddy, you don't know what you're talking about. But here's what's convicting. Because that rebellious streak that she exhibits, I see that in my own heart. And that's probably where she learned it from. See, from our earliest ages, we don't want to be ruled. And it looks differently at different ages, but it still comes back to the same reality. We don't want to be told what to do. We want to be the master of our fate. We want to be the captain of our souls. And if Hendel's Messiah doesn't move us, might I suggest it is because we don't want Jesus to truly reign in our hearts and minds. And if we could be honest for a second here, church, the reality is good Christians don't want to talk about their rebellious hearts. We hide it. We do more religious activities to display our goodness. We act like everything is fine. And yet deep down in our hearts, everything is not fine. And what is ironic is that we live in such a way that we try to overthrow God all the time. Our dirty little secret is that we want to be the kings and the queens of our own lives. And so we pay lip service to God, but we want to rule ourselves, and we're enticed by this idea of mutiny. And even as I say that, many of us in this room may be getting defensive and saying, that's not me, Pastor Bob. But isn't it? I would invite you to pause for a moment and really ask yourself again, is Jesus truly king of your life? And I wonder if I were there with Pontius Pilate at the beginning, would I have chanted, crucify him? Or would I have fallen at his feet? Would I have recognized that I have a good ruler or would my hunger for rebellion have been insatiable? See, I know my own heart and my fear is that I would have stood with the crowd. Friends, my prayer is that even today we would recognize that the rebellion that we seek will leave us empty. Our rebellion will ultimately lead to our third and final point that we are desperate for refuge. We are desperate for refuge. Because see, we live in a world with rebellious people. And when everyone's trying to be king, the world descends into chaos. Is that the type of world that we want to live in? At Christmas, we talk about peace on earth. And that will only happen when everyone submits to the true king. It is in him that we find refuge from the world at war. And that's actually where Psalm 2 ends. Verse 10 says this. It says, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. So see, the song ends with another warning. It says, be wise, rulers of the earth. In other words, it is not wise to rebel against the true king because you're going to lose. Instead, live as you were made to live, he says to the kings. Wise up and accept the reality of the situation. Serve the Lord with fear. Now that concept, the fear of the Lord, is meant to convey that God is worthy of his glory. We should fear him because he is more powerful than anything. Not only that, but we should celebrate his ruling and His with trembling. And in that fear and trembling, oddly, we find refuge. Pastor John Piper illustrates it this way. He says, suppose you were exploring an unknown Greenland glacier. In the dead of winter, 
And just as you reach the sheer cliff with a spectacular view of miles of jagged ice and mountains of snow, a terrible storm breaks in. And the wind is so strong, it's howling, and the fear rises in your heart that it might blow you over a cliff. But in the midst of the storm, you discover a cleft in the ice where you can hide. And here, you feel secure. But even though secure, the awesome might of the storm rages on, and you watch it in a kind of trembling pleasure as it surges out across the distant glaciers. Because not everything we call fear vanishes from your heart, only this life-threatening part, right? There remains the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such power. And he says, so it is with God. The fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. Hope turns into a, hope turns fear into a trembling and peaceful wonder. And fear takes everything trivial out of hope and makes it earnest and profound. See, the terrors of God make the pleasures of his people intense. The fireside fellowship is all the sweeter when the storm is howling outside the cottage. Now that's a profound phrase. But that is where we find refuge in the storm. The psalmist continues in verse 12. He says, kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Now that phrase, kiss the son, is a sign of submission and respect. It's a sign of allegiance to the ruler. In fact, the translation assumes a show of respect to the king not Yahweh, which indicates, again, the messianic nature of this psalm. In other words, God is saying, I expect that you will submit to my son. I have appointed him. And at the beginning of both John the Baptist and Jesus' ministries, they both proclaimed, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. And what they were saying was this, a new kingdom has come. The true king is here, and he wants your allegiance Again, the gospel is about the coming of a king, a great king. And so it's interesting then that to the Romans at the time of Jesus' coming, the gospel or good news often meant that a new emperor had come to power. They shouted, Curios Caesar, which meant Caesar is Lord. But the earliest Christians countered with Curios Yesu, which meant Jesus is Lord. And this made the Roman rulers nervous. And they were not wrong to feel threatened because King Jesus claims sovereignty over all other kings. He wants our allegiance. And if you don't give it, you are choosing destruction. Why? Because you were made to be ruled. He is the only one worthy of your allegiance. And when we choose allegiance to Christ, we discover this final breathtaking truth in the psalm. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Why? Because we have a king. And when we rebel against him, it causes chaos in our lives. And then all we want is refuge in the storm. And we find refuge in him as we bow at his feet and proclaim, my Lord, my God, my king. 
John Frame shares this wonderful truth. He says, service to this king is wonderful freedom. To trust this king is to trust a priest who gives full forgiveness from God and constant intercession. And to trust this king is to trust a prophet whose word is completely true and trustworthy. But did you see what he said? He says, serving the king is actually freedom. (laughs) See, no matter how rebellious we have been, we are looking for a place of refuge at the king's feet. It's when we submit to him that we actually become free because that is what we were made for. See, our story goes like this. We have a ruler. We rebel against him. And then eventually we run to him for refuge. In fact, it reminds me of the Old Testament book of Judges. The text said over and over again, they did what was right in their own eyes, the people of Israel. And whenever they did that, it led to destruction and ruin. And so they would cry out to God and he would, they would say, help us, help us. And so in his mercy, God would send a ruler a judge, to help guide them and watch over them. But then they would rebel again. And then they would run to God for help again. And so the cycle goes on and on and on. But isn't that our story as well? We have a ruler. We rebel against him. But eventually we run to him for refuge. See, this Christmas season, let's remember where we find refuge. Author Paul Tripp says it beautifully. He says, the baby came in the manger. The baby in the manger came as a conquering king to dethrone us and to enthrone himself in our hearts and lives forever and ever. See, church, we were made to be ruled by the true king. May he be enthroned in our hearts and our minds forever and ever. Pontius Pilate asked the question, so You are a king. And Jesus says, yes. But I am not just a king. I am the king. I am the one who has ultimate rule over all things. As theologian Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not a square inch of creation that Jesus does not cry, mine. And so I like to come back to the Hallelujah Chorus as we end. There's a tradition and it comes from this story. And as I, as I shared, I'd invite the worship team to join me back on the stage for one final song. The story goes like this. On March 23rd, 1743, Handel's Messiah was premiered at a charity event at the Music Hall in Dublin. And in attendance that evening was King George II of Great Britain. And when the Hallelujah Chorus rang out, George II stood to his feet for the duration of the peace. And it's recorded that out of respect and loyalty to the king, the entire audience did the same. As a result, the tradition of standing during the Hallelujah Chorus was born, and it continues to this very day if you've watched a performance. Some argue that it was because of his gout that the king stood at the precise moment to give relief from his feet and his legs. But many say that it was his way of recognizing that even he... The king of Great Britain was subject to the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Undoubtedly, this event is a great lesson for all of us to consider that though Jesus came to this earth as a baby, he will one day return to this earth as a king. 
And each one of us should yield our lives to him and recognize his authority over all things, including our lives. And as we do that, we can cry, hallelujah, Christ was born, Christ died, Christ is risen, and he is crowned King of kings and Lord of lords.